chapter 3 of Isaiah in uh, the Old Testament, pretty much halfway through the, the Bible, just a little bit further on than halfway uh, to chapter 3. We're actually going to read two chapters tonight. Woohoo! Chapter 4 is only six verses, so it's uh, kind of short. be on the screen as well to follow. See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, that's a recurring theme, a recurring name that crops up in, um, in Isaiah. It's a statement of the bigness and the greatness of God. It's worth bearing that in mind as we hold what the prophet says and the reality in which he speaks. See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty is about to take from Jerusalem and Judea both supply and support all supplies of food and all supplies of water, the hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman and clever enchanter. I will make mere youths their officials. Children will rule over them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the nobody against the honored. A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house and say, you've got a cloak, be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day, he will cry out, I have no remedy, I have no food or clothing in my house. Don't make me the leader of people, of the people. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They they don't hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. Youths oppress my people. Women rule over them. My people, your guides, lead you astray. They turn you from my path. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and the leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The Lord says the women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments, jingling on their ankles. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and the headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and anklets and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and capes and cloaks, the purses, the mirrors and the linen garments and tiaras, And shawls. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. 
instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword. Your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn. Destitute, she will sit on the ground. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, We will eat our own food and provide our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion will remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all, the Mount, all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and glowing and the glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and the rain. Gosh, I read that and uh, it seems, as I read it through, just contrasts. It paints a picture of how You know, there are privilege and power and status and finery and and contrasts in in beautiful juxtaposition. Tragic juxtaposition. Just a a little bit of context for, um, for handling Isaiah. When we um, when we read books, we used to uh, we're used to reading opening at the beginning, and we read sequen- sequentially, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, and we're used to a storyline that weaves its way through. Uh, that we start at the beginning, we end at the end, and and uh, there's a big reveal, and everything becomes clear. That's how books and films and most things work. Correct. And, and so many of the bits of the, of the Bible do that. They, they, uh, they work in that kind of linear fashion from start to finish, and there's a, a progress. Whereas Isaiah, at least in, in many parts, and, and uh, Jeremiah is similar as well, don't do it chronologically in that linear sense of it's the earliest writings at the beginning, the latest is at the end, and, and there's a sequence that progresses through the 66 chapters of, of the book. Rather... It's like things get grouped, collated, gathered together. Some of the oracles, some of the prophecies, some of the statements of the writings, teachings of, of Isaiah get lumped together. So if you're thinking, I'm just following a timeline, I'm just following a historical order, it can seem, ah, uh, he's talked about this and now we're back at it. It can seem a little bit scattered. It's because things are being clumped and grouped with a theme or a particular place, and then it may jump to somewhere else and then be back. It's not that Isaiah is confused, it's just a different way of arranging. That's just uh, a little bit of help to understand. 
when Isaiah speaks the words that he is called to speak, he is vocalizing God's heart. Now, initially, when you hear that, you kind of think, this is, this is tough stuff. In, you know, of, what does it mean? Is, is God set on making things devastated? But we just need to take a step back before we get to that quick conclusion. That when Isaiah speaks, he's speaking into a story that is already unfolding. He's speaking into the life and purposes of, of Israel, but also of the region at the time. Very real time, very real politics, very real powers, very real situations, very real contexts in which people live and move and rejoice and fear and wonder, how is this all going to play out? Little people in their little homes Growing and eating and celebrating and worshipping and being neighborly and wondering how is it all fitting together? How is the story of their lives part of the story of the great and the powerful and the powers that be? For instance, take your house, your place, your flat, your residence in the street. There's a day-to-day living. There's a day-to-day concern. There's a a going through the motions. But we're also aware of uh, of the great currents of history around us. Checkers on Friday and Brexit and and white papers being sent to Barnier. And and how is it going to unfold? And is Theresa May going to be toppled? Is she going to have a coup from within or, or be called to Parliament in a vote of no confidence? Or will she hang on? And where, what about Trump and his visit next week? And what about North Korea? And what about China and its growing trade uh, um, uh, uh, kind of power in the world? And what about these trade wars that we hear about of soya beans and, and Harley Davidson motorbikes? And, and is, is the price of our basket at the supermarket going to get affected? The very ordinary and the day-to-day of living finds context in often these trends and the winds that are blowing. Such was true for Isaiah. And for every person that was gathered in Jerusalem and Judah, because there were powers and authorities on the rise and some on the fall. And in the midst of it, God. In the midst of it, literally in Jerusalem, in the temple, God. See, that was the nub of the issue. You see, here's God's people and here's Jerusalem, the place that David had had chosen and said, this will be be the capital of God's people and and I will build a temple. And and God said to David, no, 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 you're not to do it. Okay, your city, fine, but there's too much blood on your hands. We'll we'll leave that to your son, Solomon. And Solomon uh, becomes the next leader and he establishes the temple and and it's blessed and the glory of God, the presence of God fills it and the priests have to vacate because the presence of God is indwelling. And God says, now this is the place and makes a covenant with uh, with David and says, today I'll be your father, you'll be my son and I will establish a line of kings that will reign forever in Jerusalem. 
I mean, they knew that God dwelt everywhere, that they couldn't be contained in, a, in this building on top of the mountain in, Jer- in Jerusalem, in the heart of the city. But, but still, they knew he was there. It's like he's dwelling everywhere. But, but if you wanted to post something to God, you'd know that his address was in Jerusalem, Temple Mount, Holy of Holies. God dwelt there, sacred and holy, and, and God, Lord Almighty, and, uh, and behind the curtain, and only occasionally, annually, just this one person getting a glimpse and offering in the presence of God with his people. But the winds of history and the apparent currents of society were changing. Out in the east, the Assyrians were raising up. Out in the east, there was a coup. The general overthrew the royal family in Assyria. In uh, around about 745 BC. And like often with coups, they, they begin to become militarized and they begin to arm themselves. and They begin to have visions of grandeur to extend and extend. And so this general, who's now renamed himself the emperor, of course, because that's what they do. And are seen as uh, the savior of their nation and uh, they must enforce their rule all over. His crown king starts to conquer and expand and he moves out into Babylon in the south and Armenia in the north and conquers and then sets his eyes to the west towards Israel and the leaders the leaders are wondering what they should do here's the superpower coming and Israel in the north the the ten tribes who'd split a few years earlier make a pact with the king of Aram and, and, and you know still today you know if you want to If you want to avoid getting uh, beaten up, you either stand your ground or you pay a bribe. You buy them off. So the the northern kingdom, Israel, and and Aram, they got together a whole lot of silver, 34 tons. That's a lot, isn't it? 34 tons, and they gave it to the Assyrian king and said, Here, look, we, we we will pay homage to you. We'll give you all of our resources. Just don't come and conquer us. And of course, he's mighty glad. But, and so he goes off and doesn't conquer them. And they think, phew, we're, we're saved. And then they kind of look to Judah and say, look, he's going to come back and want more soon. So I know what we need to do. You know, he's going to come. He's powerful. But if we club together, if Judah and Israel and Aram and any other ones we can gather together and make an alliance, then we'll be able to fight back. We'll be able to conquer or stand our ground. And he may think twice. But Judah said, no. No, they won't. So Israel, their northern neighbors, got cross and tried to replace the king in Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? It's a bit of a history lesson. But the same themes are around in our world. The same themes of power. The same themes of who is on the ascendancy, who is not. The same themes of, are we just pawns in a greater game? And the prophet stands for God and speaks to say, all that is going on is not beyond or outside God's purposes. It's really important to grasp. 
It's really important that as, the, as Isaiah speaks, he's got a prophetic imagination. He's seeing all of the cultural trends, all of the, the political intrigue. And he also sees above and beyond and sees the Lord, the Lord Almighty. And says, with a prophetic imagination, it's not just that this rule is in ascendancy and we just have to fight back in some way. But he sees a deeper meaning and says, what is happening on the global into the very local of everyday life is also part of God's plans and purposes. And involves very real living and attitude. And behavior. You see, when I first read chapter three, the, the first thing that the first thing that kind of struck me is is he lists all the people, these people who are leaders, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain, the counselor, the craftsman. He 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 draws their attention. To the fact that they are putting their trust in things other than God. They're putting their trust in things other than the God. Actually, they think they're putting their trust in God, but they're putting their trust in Jerusalem and the temple and the fact that God has said, you know, here's the temple in which God dwells. And they have this view that, well, because the temple is there, of course we can't be overthrown because that would mean God is overthrown. We've got God on our side and, and he's, he's kind of the Lord Almighty and, and we'll be safe as long as we stay in Jerusalem. He'll look out for us. And of course that is true in one regard. But he's not like some sort of trump card that can be played. Sorry about the illusion. I don't mean trump, you know, like current trump, but you know, top trumps. Uh, that He's like some sort of like sacred talisman. He's amidst them and, and we're immune now. No matter what comes against us, we're immune because God is with us. And Isaiah says, no, no, no. They'd come to this place of thinking because they had privilege, and they did. But that privilege hadn't led to humility and a deeper trust in the living Lord. Actually, it rather got morphed or, 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 or distorted into a self-confidence, a self-assurance, an arrogance, and a pride. Thinking that they had special status. And therefore, because they had that, they could just carry on regardless. Isaiah has strong, strong words. In verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3, the Lord through Isaiah speaks warning. He speaks there is danger ahead. That God indeed is going to judge Jerusalem and Judah. You're not immune. You aren't inoculated against. That if you rely on money and silver and see that as the basis of your security, you're so far off the mark. The Arameans and Israel were doing that. We'll trust, we'll make a payment. That will save us. No, it won't. Money never does. I remember, you know, when you kind of first glimpse one of these really important truths. I was about 13 
And uh, we had some family friends, and uh, they, they worked very much in the potteries. The, he ran a business in the potteries, in kilns, surprisingly, in the potteries. And he worked really hard, really, really hard as, uh, as a businessman and as the leader of that company. And there came a point where he thought, you know, over 30 years I've built this company, I'm going to sell it. And they sold it, and I don't know how much they sold it for, but it was quite a lot because all of a sudden their lifestyle changed. You get my drift. And there was, they were dear friends, but, and I remember eight months, nine months after they'd sold the business and everyone was saying, oh, you know, you've worked hard, you deserve this. Your life you can now live and enjoy and and take the high life. The news came that he had late stage lung cancer. And within the year he died. Now I don't think God was punishing him with lung cancer. But I remember recognizing that money doesn't save. Money can't rescue. That all the focus of that life had been on building, as Jesus would put it, building barns, making bigger provision, but missing the point. Isaiah is driving at that. He's saying, you're putting your trust in things that are untrustworthy, Ultimately, and you're putting your trust in them, you're becoming confident in them because they seem to hold, but when the day comes, they won't, and it will be too late. Come back, repent, turn away from these foolish things, and come back. You see, they were trusting in their leaders and the might of their prowess, but the contrast, he said, they will all be gone. You know, that, that the, the young will rise up against the old, no one will be honored. A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house. You've got a cloak. I mean, they're so devastated. You've got a cloak. Everyone else is gone. And because you've got a cloak, you can lead. No, no, not me. What have I got to give? Can't be me. I have no food or clothing. From opulence to devastation. In the besieged city, there are no heroes and no rulers and no prophets and no officers and no craftsmen. There's a leadership crisis Why? Because the leaders have led them away from God into self-sufficiency and pride and arrogance in themselves. The statement that we read that that they'll be ruled by children and teenagers and women isn't, isn't criticizing women and saying women shouldn't lead, but it's actually saying the men have gone, the men have failed. And God's heart in verse 12, my people... Your guides lead you astray. They turn you from my path. See, bad leadership has led to open defiance. The leaders that were meant to know haven't caused them to put their hope and trust in God and to hear him and what he had already spoken through the scriptures, but to be led astray. And the leaders are held to account. Yes, But there's come a time when the leaders have led so far and the people have just become deaf to truth and followed regardless. And such all will be judged. 
Verse 13, it has some strong words. The Lord takes his place in the court. He rises to judge the people. He says, you have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, grinding the faces of the poor? The indictment you see in the ability to raise a whole bunch of silver to pay off their threatening opponent raises the question, where did they get all that money? I mean, it's, it's a story that goes on and on and on. The contrasts are there in this, in the, you know, rather than perfume, they will stink. I mean, it's a hot day. We know about B.O. today. Thank the Lord for deodorant and perfumes. It would be a funny place without it. They won't have perfumes to mask. They will stink. Rather than having ornate sashes, ropes, meaning you'll be tied in slavery. Rather than fine clothes and costumes, sackcloth. Because you have crushed the people and ground the faces of the poor. You have so looked to the interests of yourself that you've forgotten the interests of the Lord for all people. It's such a contemporary common theme. You probably heard in the news last week of the former Prime Minister of Malaysia arrested for what? Siphoning off the money. Millions and millions. I think they said 10,000 pieces of expensive jewelry had been discovered. Corruption. Mining our own pockets. We, we know leaders, and again, in all sorts of places, we hear of, of the challenge of aid being sent, but it's being kind of like creamed off or, or not actually going to the poor, but to the privileged still. It's July, and we, well, we don't, but I know that our, uh, contemporary, our, our near neighbors, the French, celebrate the French Revolution. What was that about? You know, let them eat cake. If you've ever seen uh, Les Miserables or all that, you know that there's sort of those people decked in their fineries progressing and all the poor having to move away out of the side. And the contrast between the haves and the have-nots. Fermented a bloody revolution. Even in modern politics, even in the today, those seeds, those voices of injustice in, in the financial crash, who suffers and who seems to do so less? The establishment, I'm not being particularly polit- party political right now, But those who advocate for a change and a redistribution, an equaling of the disparity seen as threats. Where does the wealth come from? And Isaiah reminds us that with wealth, it's not so much the wealth, but it's Okay, where are the lowest and the least in society and how are they? I do find it troubling in our nation 
that those who advocate for food banks are kind of ridiculed and say, no, no, no. Those who want to, to bring uh, education to the, 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 um, the least advantage in society and an opportunity for those early years, that they are the ones who seem to have their funding cut first. I have too many elderly in awful conditions in care homes. I think Isaiah would see the plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? Isaiah has a prophetic imagination and says this isn't the way it is meant to be. The Lord, the Lord Almighty. He says there's an arrogance and a pride, a contentment, a carrying on, an ignorance, a a willingness to be blind to. The people aren't weeping over their sin. Verse uh, Chapter 3, verse 26. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn. I mean, what does that mean? The very gates of the city will actually mourn because the people aren't. The people aren't deeply grieved by the state of the affairs. They're not turning their own lives around. They've been led astray and have become complicit and blind to. And God says, it shall not always be like this. The clouds are gathering. The darkening of the sky. The threat is there. Can you see it? This is serious. Before the piercing shaft of light in chapter 4. There is good news. Because it's got so bad. Whenever there is judgment in the scripture there is always hope. Judgment is never the last word. But hope and salvation from that place of desperation. And Lord, may it not be like this always. Good news comes because it has got so bad. One of the things that struck me in the last two weeks In the story coming out of Thailand of the, those boys, the football team and their coach, trapped hundreds of meters behind water in small tunnels in darkness, captures, I'm not going to make a, a lot of this, but captures that sense of, it's so bad, we long for their rescue. These poor kids, let's do everything we can To set them free. And our hope and our emotion is stirred. And as we we saw those images of the first divers getting there and saying, hope is coming. And we go, thank you. Hooray. And we hear that a few of them have made it wonderfully, heroically out of that deep, dark pit. We know what it's like to rejoice in the shaft of piercing light into the tomb of darkness. And this is what Isaiah is speaking. You see, Isaiah is pointing out, and the people don't realize how dark it has become because they've become conditioned to the culture. 
I'm always challenged when I go to India and I, I walk around and particularly in some of the big cities and these it's colossal skyscrapers and, and people with fancy fast cars and at the foot of these buildings are rag pickers and street dwellers unkempt. And I say, how can that be? This, it, it's there. And then I think to myself, it's just not in Chipping Camden very often. But it's there. A new branch. A new and better king. A new ruler and leader. Who won't be of the ilk and the ideology of all that have come before. This one will purify, not pollute. This one will be holy and not corrupt. This one... We won't carry arrogance, but deep humility. He will bring restoration, not rejection. And speaks wonderfully of this this cloud of smoke by day and glowing flame by night. You remember where that happened before in the history of God's people? It was when he formed the people in the wilderness. It was when they had lost everything and they'd, they'd, they'd been rescued out of slavery, out of that dark pit of Egypt. And God was with them and God was the rescuer and God was the savior. And he dwelt with them by day and by night and they could see his tangible presence amongst them. And he provided for them water and food. And he led them even when they were threatened and lost. He was with them. A new king will come. The branch. Later on in Isaiah will define it as a branch of Jesse. Not of David as such. But from Jesse. David's father. It's not of that lineage that has become corrupt and failed and ceases in the destruction of Jerusalem. It does happen, lo. If you want to read about it, turn to 2 Kings 25 and read what the prophet said would come to pass because they didn't repent. Chapter 3 gets enacted in 2 Kings 25, 1 to 17. And it's dreadful reading. But in the midst of despair, the hope that God has not lost or been overthrown or forgotten, but is and will do a new thing. The Holy One will come. I noted as I was just reading through this, if, you know, the temple goes. Where's the pillar of fire and cloud? It's amongst them. It's not in the heart of the city anymore, but with them wherever they are. It's one of the things that that Jesus spoke of as he, he moved about in his three years of ministry. And he said, this temple will be destroyed. But in three days, it will be built again. And blasphemy, how can you come against God's holiness, God's temple? That's where he dwelled. You see, they hadn't learned their lesson even after the exile. They were still trusting in the place, not the person. But the person had come into their midst. The very presence of God 
amongst the poor and the desperate and the dispossessed and those crying out to be rescued. The saviour, those who were sick know they needed a doctor. Those who knew that they couldn't rescue themselves reached out and cried out, have son of David, have mercy upon me. And he did. For God was in their midst, freed from the religious institutions for all people to turn to, forming a new people around himself, a new city, a city on a hill that will never be covered, the church, the people of God. The prophets are challenging to read. They disturb the complacent. They speak into our culture. And they speak to me at least. Of where do I put my trust? And there's no simple, easy answer. I heard this week of of how actually when we put our trust in God, there's something that is different. How we act and behave as believers makes a massive difference around. I heard the story of a a disaster in Honduras. There's many disasters in the world, but in this particular one, there was a hurricane and the rain fell. And around the city, the clay hillsides collapsed. Tons and tons of mud enveloped around about the year 2000. One of the disaster relief coordinators that went was Clive Calver. He used to lead the Evangelical Alliance in Britain. And he was being given a tour to see what and how they could make a difference. On one street, they came across a house. It was known as the Cripple's House because in the bed, dead under 10 feet of mud was the cripple, and everyone was sad. They turned another corner and found another pile of rubble and a man outside weeping. And they said, why are you weeping? And he said, under there is my wife and my children, and I've lost everything. And they turned another corner onto another street, and they found an old lady. And she was walking with a spring in her steps, strangely, and appeared very different in her demeanor to everybody else. And she was moving with a purpose. Where are you going? They said, I'm going to church. She answered. Why? She said, I love Jesus. Do you? They said, yes. And they asked her, what's your story? And she said, well, I've lost my house and everything that I had in it. I've lost my market stall and all I had in the stall is gone. And two of my family are missing. But I'm going to church. Why? And she said, tragedy like this gives us an opportunity to show those who don't have Jesus what it means to lose everything. And yet I've lost nothing because I've still got Jesus. It's not that she's pretending it doesn't matter. But she was stating clearly I'm rich still. We have to work really hard in in a society that is well provided for 
to analyze our heart and say, where is our trust? Where are the foundations being built, upon the rock or upon sand? Because the storms will come. For those on the rock and the sand, the storm comes. We have to work really hard at saying, are we going with the flow of culture or having a prophetic imagination to see as Isaiah and many other pioneers before and since that the Lord calls a different way. And the Lord has set about a purpose and a righteousness and a way that no longer seeks to grind the poor or crush people but lift them up. And give a dignity and a hope and a life and a living. Reading Isaiah the prophet calls us to examine our heart. But never recognize, uh, never shy away from the fact that personal faith is worked out. In the day-to-day living. In our modern era in political currents and trends. And always... To trust the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Let's pray together.